0: Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Good morning, everybody. Sound great? You look okay? Um, Online, you sound great, you look fantastic. Um, Thank you for tuning in, had some tech issues first service, but I think we're good, so thank you for for being here, thanks for joining us. Uh, Especially to those online, I want to encourage you after the message as we do a song, I want you to stay with us online, Uh, T and Pastor Scott Mason are going to come back, and uh, I've got a a suggested resource at the close of our time this morning, and so they'll connect with you and let you know how we can help get that into your hand as well, so stay with us, don't don't jump out too quick. But, uh, man, we are two weeks from Easter. (laughs) Five of us are excited, probably double that online. But, uh, man, it's just kind of hard to believe. Uh, I want to encourage you to do something as we lead into this Easter season. We've been going through this I Am series, uh, looking at the, the things that Jesus declares about himself. And I love the Gospel of John. And so I want to encourage you to, to get your Bible and spend some time in the next couple of weeks leading up to Easter and just read through John's gospel. Um, but I want you to do it in a different way. I want you to get a highlighter, colored pencil, something. And I want you to just read through it. I want you to just see the intimacy with which Jesus communicates. Uh, read through and underline or highlight every time you see the word Father. You're going to see over 130 occurrences of the word in in John's gospel because Jesus is speaking in such an intimate way. Look for ways that he is is equating himself or declaring himself to be God. Look for those instances because there's a lot of them in there where he talks about being sent from the Father or that I've come down from heaven um, because this is such an intimate book about the person of Jesus Christ um, and his declaration to be God. And that is literally what the, our salvation and the Christian faith hinges on is, is Jesus who he claims to be? So as we work through this I Am series, it's important to realize who he claims to be. Um, one thing that, that I, I always look at when I, when I read scripture and I see it so much in John is that Jesus was absolutely clear as to who he was. He was also very clear in understanding the purpose for which he came. And, and you'll see that as you simply read it from that perspective and saying, who, who is Jesus? Who does he really say that he is? Well, Jesus clearly knew who he was. I think the question becomes, do I know who he is? See, there's more historical evidence proving the existence of a man named Jesus than there is actually proving that George Washington was the first president of the United States. So all the historical evidence is there, all the documentation is there. No one will argue with you whether or not Jesus existed. The question is, is he who he claimed to be? And some of you in this room, you're going through religious motions, you may even claim to have a relationship with God through Jesus, but there's questions. I want you to know this this morning, Jesus is okay with your questions. He will confront every question that you have head on, he'll work with it, he will help you, he will teach you, he will instruct you if you're willing to ask the honest questions because we see some honest questions in our text this morning. But when we come to know Him, we have a a broader question that you and I have to wrestle with as followers of Jesus, and that is, what about those that are nearest to me? See, if, if I believe that Jesus is God, that He is who He says He is, it should impact my life in such a way that it impacts those around me, because you and I will have influence. You and I are influencing others. The question is, what kind of influence are we having? And so that becomes a greater question as we wrestle with the text. I love watching Jesus' life and ministry because he moves in and out of the public arena. He moves into public uh, different teachings and dissertations, but then he retreats over here with his closest followers, and he is so intentional, and he is so specific in what and how he teaches who he teaches. And up to this point in our I Am series, Jesus has been in somewhat of a public arena, but this is the first time we see him moving into a more private setting with his disciples. John chapter 14, if you have your Bible, say, I got it. I got it. Great. Open it up to John chapter 14, and as you're getting there, um, I want to just set us up a little bit this morning. Uh, because up to this point, we have seen Jesus in a public arena. Begin the series in John chapter six, as Pastor Scott talked about Jesus as the bread of life. He did that in a public way in front of a multitude of people that he fed, over five thousand. The disciples, the crowd, the multitude was there, and he made that declaration that I am the bread of life. We moved on to John chapter eight. Pastor Scott Mason unpacked about three weeks ago, just talking about Jesus in in the temple. And again, in front of the Pharisees, in front of the Jews, in front of the people in the temple, made the declaration that I am the light of the world. And then we spent the last two weeks in John chapter 10, again, the disciples, the Pharisees, Jews, and others, the text tells us, Jesus made the declaration that I am the door, or I am the gate. And then he went on to say that I am the good shepherd. What a great message last week from Pastor Scott. On the heels of that, he moves into some additional public ministry, the raising of Lazarus, and then from chapter 12 through about chapter 17, it's very intimate and it's very private. Uh, It's a very intimate discourse as Jesus is now bringing his public earthly ministry to a close. And, And there's a tension that we begin to see in our text because of what Jesus knows and what he is experiencing. But let me remind us this morning, one of the keys to understanding the Gospel of John is found in John chapter 20. Don't turn there, but you'll see it on the screen, where John writes these words. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. This is actually the declaration that Jesus makes in our text this morning, that he has come to be the way for us to have a relationship with God. This is exactly how he clearly states this I am statement this morning. So in John chapter 14, we're going to begin. And and let let me set it a little bit because 14 is a continuation of 13, 12, 11, and 10. Okay, so as Jesus now retreats to a private moment with his disciples, where has he just been? Well, he just raised Lazarus from the dead. He retreated a little bit. He came back. He had a dinner with Mary, Martha, Lazarus, and a bunch of other people. In other words, a big gathering celebrating him. Now uh, he understands that there's this plot to kill him. You see it in John chapter 11, uh, where the Pharisees and the Jews begin to, this plot to kill Jesus. Matter of fact, they're so frustrated with this guy that was risen from the dead named Lazarus, they say, well, let's go ahead and kill him too. And in John 12, 27, Jesus is saying, now my soul is troubled right? Because he understands I am about to leave this earth. I'm about to go through all the things that I know are about to take place. And he says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. So speaking of his death, he speaks with a troubled heart. In John chapter 13, as he reclines at the table with his disciples enjoying the Passover feast, John notes that Jesus was troubled in his heart. Why? Because he knew what was coming. And then in John thirteen thirty six, right before our text, Jesus says, where I am going, you cannot follow. So that puts everything in context for what Jesus is about to say to his disciples. John 14, beginning in verse 1, he simply says this, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. We're just going to stop right there for just a moment. Because Jesus, who is troubled and the disciples sense it, and there's a little bit of a tension taking place between what they're seeing, what they're experiencing, and what they're hearing from Jesus. And so he he wants to reassure them. He wants to comfort them. And I think for somebody in this room or somebody watching online, this may be the very thing that you need to hear this morning. Because Jesus presents himself as an object of faith you believe in God, believe also in me. Clearly saying he is the object of our faith. And so he says, believe in me. This is the same word that he used with his encounter with Nicodemus back in John chapter 3. Do you remember that? Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a a highfalutin guy of the the law comes to Jesus and he says, how can I have eternal life? And Jesus says, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now listen, the word believe here is not just an intellectual understanding because many of you, many online, you're going, well, I, I believe in God. But this is not simply an intellectual understanding. The word believe literally is, is to surrender, to trust, to give yourself over to something. It's literally what you're doing right now when you walked in the room and you sat in the chair. You surrendered yourself, you yielded yourself, you put your complete trust in the chair. And as far as I know, none of those gave in. But but that's the picture of what it is to truly believe, not just an intellectual understanding, oh, that's a chair. And, and some of us have done nothing more than that with God. Well, yes, I believe that there's a God. That's an intellectual assent, but it's not a surrendering, it's not a yield, and so it's the same word that Jesus uses here, but it's interesting because when you look at the verb tense, it is an imperfect tense of the verb, which literally says continue to believe, continue to trust, continue to surrender, continue to yield. So, as he speaks to his disciples, saying, Let not your hearts be troubled, you believe in God, continue to believe. You believe in me, continue to believe. And for some of you this morning, that's what you need to hear. Because we live in a very troubled time, don't we? If it's not a pandemic, it's something else. It's politics, it's family, it's struggles, it's hardships, it's work, it's relationships. It's tragedy. All those things pile upon us. And I want you to hear this morning that Jesus is inviting you to just keep trusting. Keep believing. He's got a plan. He's got a plan. And some of you just need to know that this morning. But I love this encounter in John 14 because it is such a human moment between Jesus and His disciples. And so if I can, let's just read through our text. Let's go back to verse one and continue. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in, my, in, in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. The Greek literally is dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Now let me just pause there and keep the text up because we're coming straight back to it. Jesus had just told them near the end of chapter 13, and again, John did not write the chapters. Those came later. But Jesus had just told his disciples, where I am going, you cannot go. And now he turns around and he says, I go to prepare a place for you. And, and I'm going to come back, and I'm going I'm to take you with me, and you know the way to where I am going. And in that moment, and we don't know if this was like an immediate dialogue, or if there was a pause here, or if there was a break, uh, you know, they're, they're at the, the Passover. I mean, who knows? They're, they might be taking another drink. We don't know exactly the time frame here, but we do know that Thomas turned around and asked a question of Jesus. And it's for this question, along with another one later, that we have a nickname for Thomas. What is that? doubting Thomas I totally disagree with that I call him analytical Thomas he's the guy in the room that asked the hard questions and I believe at this moment in the room every other guy goes man I am so glad that somebody asked that question because everybody else was like me just kind of sitting there going oh yeah yeah that's profound oh Jesus that's that's very profound thank you Jesus But Thomas goes, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And everybody else was like, oh, my God, thank you. I'm so glad someone asked. And it's because of Thomas and his inquisitive moment that we have this this dialogue that's very honest. Again, Jesus is not afraid of your questions. Go ahead and ask him a question. Go ahead and ask him whatever you like. But because of his honest transparency in this moment for clarification, we have this great I am statement of Jesus in verse 6. Let's pick it up. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Verse 7, Jesus says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Listen, fundamental to Jesus' response to Thomas' question was that Jesus himself is the way. The fact that he is the truth and the life are simply supporting statements to Jesus being the way to a relationship with the Father. He is reassuring his disciples of the truth that he has taught all along through his ministry that he is God and he is trustworthy. Somebody say amen. Amen. He is God and he is trustworthy. If there's one truth I want you to walk out of this room or away from the screen with this morning is simply this, Jesus is God. That is life changing. Is Jesus who he truly claimed to be or not? You see, some of us simply go, well, you know, I believe what I was always told, but you've never wrestled with the truth to have a dynamic faith that is growing with a deep understanding that yes, Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. How do we know that? Well, there's there's historical evidence. There's proof of of who Jesus was. There's proof of everything that took place. And because Jesus is God, I want you to see that he is the only way to a personal relationship with the Father. See, because Jesus is God, he is the only way to a personal relationship with the Father. And, And you may sit there and go, well, why do we need a way? Doesn't God love everybody? Remember the Bible says, "For God so loved the world." Right? Doesn't He love all of His creation? He does. But there's this weird little three-word, three-letter. Uh, letter, thank you. Gosh, three-letter word called sin. It's so big and it's so profound. I totally stepped on it. But this this little word called sin, and that sin is so amazing because it creates a separation between us and the God that loves us. That's the whole reason Jesus came is because of the sin of mankind. And so Jesus steps in and he makes this difficult statement of exclusivity that there's only one way to a relationship with God. Now listen, in our day and age, in our culture, this is going to become more and more and more profound. This is going to begin to isolate, I believe, the Christian faith more and more in our culture because Jesus made what I think is one of the most bigoted, intolerant statements in our culture today, that there's only one way to a relationship with God, and that is through Jesus Christ the Son. Many people ask, well, why is there only one way? And, and I get asked that question a lot, and so my response is this, are you kidding me? I can't believe that there is even a way. Well, that, that completely changes the dialogue at that point. It's not that there's just one way, it's that, are you kidding? God in all of his holiness and righteousness created a way for me to have a personal relationship with him. What does the Bible tell us about sin? Romans chapter 3, Paul writes these words, he says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already chained charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Four verses down, verse 23, he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. There it is, the way, the truth, and the life. You see, because there's bad news, we have good news. The bad news is that we're all sinners. The good news is there's hope. Now, I wanted to say that years ago I had a a speeding problem. That problem still persists. But years ago, I spent a lot of time in traffic court. And it was kind of the same experience over and over and over until one day, I went to a traffic court that was unlike any traffic court I've ever been in. I went in, did my normal thing. I'd been there, I understand the process, so I went in, I sat down, and I knew that the bailiff would eventually call everyone to stand and the judge would come in and he'd begin to call cases one by one. And I've sat through enough of these, and I remember all the stories. And, I, you know, you kind of go in, you're trying to think, man, what is my story? Do I have a good story, you know, to tell this judge? Well, something completely different happened that day in court. Because the bailiff all rise and stand up very respectfully. The judge comes in, he's got his nice little black robe and everything. But before he just immediately went up on the bench, he did something I've never seen a judge do before. And he stayed on the floor, and he walked around in front of his bench, And he began to teach a simple lesson on guilt. Now, guilt was coupled with truth. And for about 15 minutes, he just kind of went on and he talked about the law and the value of the law and the purpose of the law. And he says, Look, he says, if the speed limit says 35 and you were doing 36, you're guilty. It doesn't matter. The law is the law, it is what is true. So it doesn't matter if you're one over or if you're a hundred over. The truth of the matter is you're guilty and everybody in the room is just like slumping at this point because all their excuses are getting blown out the door. And then he came to a point and he says, okay, great, now that we've done that, let's begin. And he turned around and he walked up and he went up into his bench and he said, bailiff call the first case. Now, again, I've been in a lot of traffic courts and people would approach, you know, they stand there, how do you plead? Oh, not guilty, sir. You know, and they would start, well, it was rainy, and it's, they would give all these excuses as to why they think they're not guilty. But it was amazing. This courtroom was unlike any that I've ever been to because one by one, bailiff call the next case. Call Jim Hardigan. Walks up. How do you plead? Guilty. <laughs> okay, great. But, you know, here's your fine. blah, blah. Next, case comes up. How do you plead? Guilty, guilty guilty I just heard it over and over and over I thought this is the fastest court I've ever been in either this guy has plans or he just understands that everybody comes up with an excuse as to why they're not guilty when the truth of the matter is we're all guilty, guilty. man so can we come to a place this morning where we all agree that on some level of sin we're all guilty can you just say it out loud I'm guilty Say it out loud, type it, Pastor Scott will interact with you. The truth of the matter is we're guilty. Now, we may not think we're so bad because we can always find someone that's worse than we are, right? Yeah, but I'm not like Chuck over here. Chuck's awful. But, but the truth of the matter is it doesn't matter if you're one mile over and, and, or a hundred miles over, whether it was just a thought in your head or it was something you actually lived out and did. You say, well, I never murdered anyone. Well, Jesus said, look, if you've even hated someone in your heart, you've committed murder. Anybody? Just say, I'm a murderer, I'm guilty. But that's the truth. So there's this reality that we are all guilty. And where does this leave us before God? It leaves us guilty. What are we supposed to do with that? Jesus said, I am the way. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, I love this passage. Paul is writing and he says, for the wages of sin, the wage, what you earn, the wages of sin is death. The word literally means separation. So the wages of sin is death, but the free gift, again, bad news, good news, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So, bad news, good news. What is he saying? He's saying there's death or separation between the holiness and righteousness of God. Just create a picture with me for a moment. Right over here is the holiness and righteousness of God. He is a holy, eternal, righteous God. And he dwells over here. And over here is me. And you, by your own admission of guilt, we're over here because we are sinful, And that sin, the Bible says, separates us. There's a separation between my sin and the holiness of God. Well, that's bad news if it weren't for Jesus' declaration that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And that through Jesus, we can have a personal relationship with the Father. It comes through repentance. It comes through confession. You see, God is holy and righteous, and I'm sinful, and that sin separates me. So why or how could a holy, righteous God allow my sin into his presence? Well, the answer is he can't. But God. But God. When we started our Love Is series back in January, Pastor Scott unpacked this passage so well. But in in Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 8, Paul says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Here it is, Jesus, the way, the truth, the life. It is through Jesus Christ he creates a bridge between my sin and the holiness of God. God cannot allow my sin into his presence, so what needs to happen? He needs to look at me, and he needs, needs to see the righteousness of himself through the blood of Jesus Christ that covers me, and he accepts me. I don't know, that gets me cranked. Anybody else? man, that is unbelievable. I could not pay the price for my sin. The only way that I could stand right in His presence is for Him to see His righteousness. That's what Jesus did. He paid the price that He did not owe, and He paid the price for me to have a relationship with the Father that I could never pay on my own. That is great news. That Jesus bridges this gap between a holy God and a sinful people that he loves and cares for and makes a way. But he will not force that love on anybody. And I want you to see too that Jesus is God. Therefore, he is the truth that leads to an accurate understanding of the Father. Because Jesus is God, he is the truth that leads to this accurate understanding of the Father. Jesus is not simply declaring truth. Jesus is saying, I am truth. He is truth. He is truth incarnate just as he is love incarnate, just as he is holiness incarnate, just as he is righteous incarnate. It is the character, it is who he is. He doesn't simply display love, he is love. He doesn't simply speak truth, he is truth. Truth reflects his very character, his very nature. All moral and absolute truth is based on the person, nature, and character of God. God is truth, therefore, lying is wrong. God is life, therefore, murder is wrong. You get it? You see where we're going here? God is a just God, therefore, injustice is wrong. All moral absolute truth is based on the person, nature, and character of God. And so when Philip, as you continue, we read verse seven, but if you continue with seven down through verse 11, you see this dialogue between Jesus and Philip and the disciples, because Philip says, well, show us the Father and that will be enough. And some of you are kind of waiting for one more thing to be enough. What are you waiting for? Because Jesus turns around and he goes, if, if you want to know the Father, know me. If you want to see the Father, see me. He is truth. He is the standard for all truth. I don't know what you're waiting for, but we have a lot of people in our culture that are waiting for one more thing. Exactly what Philip said. Oh, just show us the Father and that will be enough. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. You know me, you know the Father. Keep on believing. See, because there's an absolute standard of holiness, righteousness, and truth, we understand that we do not measure up to that standard, but Jesus does. Jesus does. And he paid the price for my sin, and that was enough. That was enough. You want to know the Father? Know the Son. You want to grow in relationship with the Father? Grow in relationship with the Son. Because Jesus is God. And because Jesus is God, third, I want you to see that he is the life that brings transformation and intimacy with the Father. You see, many people look at religion as a transaction because that's pretty much what it is. But that's not what Jesus offers, right? The the unique thing about what Jesus offers is a relationship with God, not a religion. I've had a lot of encounters with people through the years. And and as we begin to to kind of talk about things, well, I don't don't like religion. I said, I agree. And in, in my worst English possible, I will say, yeah, man, I learned religion don't work. For, for all those English people in the room, it does not work. Because I define religion as man's best attempt to reach God. It's a transactional process. In other words, in my sin over here, I'm doing everything I can in hopes of, of God accepting me. Oh, well, God, I went to church. Or, God, I was baptized. God, I took communion. God, I helped a little old lady across the street. God, I even returned my cart at Walmart. You know, I'm doing all these things, and gosh, I sure hope that God's going to accept me. I sure hope my good outweighs my bad. That's called religion. See, religion is all about transaction. What Jesus offers is transformational, not transactional. This is not a transaction. We don't do all these things and hope that God's going to love us and accept us. We come to the place of realizing I am a sinner before God, and there's not a thing in the world I can do about it. Jesus paid the price for my sin. I am going to receive this free gift of salvation by what? Believe, surrender, yield, completely give myself over to Him. Jesus paid the price for my sin, and in doing so, He brings new life. We saw it in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates His own love for us even while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. I'm over here. Jesus died for me to create a way that I can come into relationship with God. And when I do, that is transformational. He changes us from the inside out remember what Jesus said the last couple of weeks in John chapter 10? He said, the thief, verse 10, only comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and that they may have it abundantly. The word abundantly literally means full, meaningful life, a life that has purpose, value, dignity, and honor. He transforms us. He moves us from death to life. Jesus is God. Therefore, he is the creator God. He creates life. He sustains life. And we have life and breath because God gives it to us. Jesus came to then give us a new life, to move us from death to life. And this is not simply about going to heaven one day. It's about experiencing the abundant life that Jesus promised right now. You see, many people they they put their trust in Jesus and then they just step back and think, well, someday I'm going to die, which we will. I guarantee you that I will die someday. Maybe today, maybe I don't know. Hebrews nine says it is appointed unto to man to Dave once to die and then to experience judgment. But but I can simply step back and go, well, you know, I trusted God and I got this you know newfound relationship with God and I can just sort of exist or I can live the abundant life that Jesus promised and, and I begin to experience what God intends for me now and then one day I will pass and I will spend eternity in the presence of Almighty God forever. That's pretty awesome. So years ago, there was a, a thing called the, the faith evangelism strategy and they were teaching people to share their faith in Jesus by the word faith, F-A-I-T-H. And, and H was for heaven. And, and they introduced a phrase that has really stuck with me. They said, heaven is both here and hereafter. And I kind of wrestled with that at first, but then I thought, you know, I really kind of like that. Because when Jesus invites me to a new life, he moves me from death to life, and he begins to transform me. And I begin to experience heaven. In other words, relationship with God. What is heaven? Heaven is just being in the presence of God for all eternity. Well, if I have a relationship with God right now, what does he want me to do? Anybody? Anybody online? He wants me to experience his presence and intimacy with him right now, so guess what I get to do? I get to enjoy heaven, my relationship with God, right now. So heaven is both here and hereafter. Some people live this miserable Christian existence. My dad used to have a saying, he said, man, if a Christian can't leave the house with a smile on his face, he ought to just stay home, right? because we are a reflection of the love and the grace and the mercy and the goodness and the righteousness and the holiness and the truth of Jesus Christ. And it should transform our lives. We should experience the joy of knowing Jesus, the joy of walking with Jesus, of living in an intimate relationship with Jesus, both here and hereafter. This is like being in the bullpen, man. Baseball season starts, what, in in another week, two weeks, week and a half, right? Cubs opener April 1st, I'm so excited, you know, our first loss of the year is coming. I'm just excited. But it's like being in the bullpen, man, this is just warming up. I'm warming up for heaven by living a life of intimate fellowship and relationship that is transformed through the power of the Holy Spirit in me right now. What about you? Do you know the Father? Are you growing in intimacy and relationship with the Father? Here's a couple of questions for you. How can we know God? We can know God by knowing Jesus. We can be brought into a right relationship with God by accepting the gift of salvation through the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So let me ask you a question, is Jesus really God? This is what He claimed. And you can sit in church, and you go through all the motions, and guys, again, that's religion. Until you come to the place of realizing Jesus really is God, and you put your trust in Him, there is not salvation. You need to come to that place of going, Jesus is God, and I am placing my trust in Him. I am believing. I am yielding. I am surrendering. I'm giving my life over to Him. But you may be wrestling. You may have questions. Can I just tell you that's okay? Okay. We're here to help answer questions. We're here to point you to the one who can answer those questions, and that's Jesus himself. So who do you say that he is? I want to suggest a resource for everybody in the room, everybody online. It is a great little book. It's simply entitled More Than a Carpenter. Uh, I've got some of these on campus this morning. We'll have more in the office this week. Uh, I actually have a copy in Russian. I've got a copy in Spanish, if that appeals to you at all. Um, Spasiba. So, um, I want to encourage you to do this. I know I encourage you to read the Gospel of John between now and Easter. I encourage you to get this book. You can order it. I will give you some. um, I'll give you whatever. you. I'll order as many as you want to give away to people. Um, This is a phenomenal book talking about the person of Jesus Christ, and it answers some of the hard questions. Is the biblical man, are the biblical manuscripts reliable? Is scripture even reliable? It, it addresses the question who was Jesus? Because the question is not whether Jesus existed, who was he? And C.S. Lewis wrestled with it, Josh wrestles with it, with it in this book. He was either Lord, as he said he was, or he was a liar, in which case his lie has done the greatest good than any lie or every truth ever has, or he was a lunatic. He was just flat out nuts. He had to be one of those three. What was he? It's in here. Uh, It deals with the guys that he's talking to in this text, the disciples, the guys who knew him best. Did Jesus do exactly what he said he was going to do? And if he didn't, how many of those guys would have continued the lie of Jesus to their death? There's a chapter on that in here, simply entitled, Who Would Have Died for a Lie? You can get it online, you can get the Kindle version, you can buy it. I've got copies. I am happy to put as many of these in your hands as you want. But here's one: what I want you to encourage to, you to do. I want you to read it. I want you to grow in your faith, have a firmer understanding of your faith. And then I want you to give it to somebody. I always keep a stack of these because I've given literally hundreds of these away. One to a doctor who was dating a friend of mine, kind of a mutual friend, and I gave it to him on Saturday when we met for lunch. Sunday morning, we were standing for church. He tugs me. He goes, hey, right in the middle of church. He goes, I read that book you gave me yesterday. I said, really? He goes, there's really no other way but Jesus, is there? I said, no, Chris, there's not. And Chris gave his heart and life to Jesus Christ. You go, hey, man, it's not rocket science. Well, there was a guy named Paul in my life. He was in a church I was pastoring in Dallas and, and, or in Texas, and Paul was coming because his kids and grandkids were there. And I, I was just talking to Paul one day. I said, Paul, I'm just glad you're here and, and hanging out with your family and stuff. I said, where do you stand in this whole thing with Jesus? He goes, yeah, I'm not really sure about that yet. I said, can I give you a book? This guy worked for NASA. I mean, it literally is rocket science, you know. I gave it to Paul. Next week, he shows up at church. He goes, I read that book you gave me. I said, really? I said, yeah. He goes, there's really no other way but Jesus, is there? I had the privilege of baptizing Paul in our church. Because he gave his heart and life to Jesus Christ because he thought through the the analytical process just like Thomas was and understood that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way to a relationship with God except through Jesus Christ. If you want to read this and then give it to somebody, maybe invite them for Easter, this is what we celebrate. Jesus is God. And he invites us to a personal relationship with the Father and he's made a way for us because he is the way, the truth and the life. Let's pray together. Father, in this place, I just thank you that you have made a way. God, I'm astounded that you would make a way for us to have a personal relationship with you. Lord, for everybody that's in this place, for everyone that's watching online right now, Father, I pray that you would just prompt their heart Lord, we want to help equip. We want to point people to Jesus because we're passionate about connecting people to Jesus for life change. But Lord, we know that ultimately you have to draw people to yourself. Lord, it's okay to wrestle with the hard questions. You're perfectly fine with that because it simply builds our faith. It's a more solid foundation. So, Lord, would you wrestle with us? If you're online, I want to invite you to stay with us because we're going to do everything we can to put one of these books in your hand. Pastor Scott Mason will help do that. We'll drop it to you. We'll come by and get it. We'll ship it to you, whatever needs to happen. If you're in the room, we'd love to have a conversation with you. Maybe you just have some questions this morning and you're just not really sure about what it means to have this personal relationship with God through Jesus. We'd love to have that conversation with you. Would you let us do that? Maybe you want to grab one of these books this morning or just let me know. We'll get some stuff in your hands this week. We'd love to do anything we can to help you grow in your faith and help you own your impact as you minister to those that are closest to you. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thanks for Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life.